Grace, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I'm first, excited. First podcast ever? First podcast ever, yes. What do you think of our setup in here? It's different. I feel kind of like I'm in air traffic control <laughs> or something with these headphones. Well, once you, yeah, once you get yeah. used to them, it, it's nice because you can fully hear. Yeah, I've never done, I'm not like a performer or like, you know, the radio. I've never done anything like this, so it's a new experience. No, you never played an instrument or? I did, but like on stage, not not in this way. So okay. this Yeah, is, it's different. Yeah, this is different for me. I'm kind of used to it by now. But. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so what's going on this week, Friday? Parent conferences today. So I've had parent conferences all week. I've built into like my prep period, so I think... I have 20 conferences this week. I've done, I have five left today. So I have a big break, which is why I'm here. And um, I have nine in total today. Parent conferences with the little kids is kind of a big deal because you've got to, like what kind of things do you talk about with parents? So it's, usually you just end up talking about the kid. It's less talking about academics. It depends on the child, but I think it's, I actually really enjoy them. It's, It's a lot of work and a lot of prep, but I think every kid makes like more sense once you meet the people who are raising them. Um, and, you know, they can be tricky, but I always, my rule of thumb is, you know, you shouldn't be like springing news on a parent in a parent conference. If you've had, you know, if the kid needs support, you should have had that talk a long time. Do you prior. feel like you've communicated with a lot of these parents beforehand yes. through yeah. email or yeah. Yeah, I, on the phone? I think part of what I like about being an elementary school teacher is the parent connection. Um, I think it can be like intimidating to a lot of people. And when I started teaching, it was strange because you know, I'm not a parent. I'm 29. I don't have my own kids yet. And I think they, I, I sort of felt to myself, you know, how, what do I know about raising children? Um, but we spend more time with their kids sometimes than mm-hmm. the actual parents. And so it sort of struck me about you know, how much they ask for advice about, you know, bedtime and nutrition and, um, you know, social interaction. And um, it feels like a privilege to be able to yeah have that influence. Well, you spend so much time with the kids and observe them with other kids, yeah. which maybe, you know, it's probably a lot more time that you've spent in that way than the parent has in a lot of cases, yeah, right? I think so. I mean, my parents used to say we spent more time at school than we did at home. My brother and I went to an independent school all the way from pre-K through 12th grade, and so we for sure spent more hours there than we did at our like childhood home. And um, yeah, I mean, I think this I'm a fifth grade teacher, so this is also sort of the last year they get that real... Um, like homeroom teacher relationship, it, everything shifts in middle school, and you have your advisor and whatnot. Um, and and I think it's hard for parents. Like they're, this is a big time of year for them. They're sort of seeing middle school as looming, and um, it's exciting, but I think also pretty, pretty anxiety provoking for, for them. So fifth grade, uh, what are, what's that like? What is it like to be in fifth grade? I guess. I mean, I I I remember fifth grade as a pretty influential, monumental year. It might just have been me, but when I was in fifth grade, my Pop Warner f- football team was going to Florida for the Pop Warner Super Bowl. We, cool. we were like a really good Pop Warner team. Well, I don't know what Pop Warner football is. Pop Warner is just like, it's like Little League Baseball okay. for okay. football. Got so it. it was maybe the second or third year I had been playing, and I got on this really good team. And it was all kind of because of our running back was really, really good and really yeah. fast. But <laughs> We, uh, it was a great experience, and I totally remember that year because that kind of framed everything. But 
It's it's a big year. I mean, so I was in middle school in fifth grade. My school started middle school in fifth. Um, but I don't know. I sort of describe fifth grade. It's kind of an emotional roller coaster for a lot of kids. I think it wasn't so much for me. I don't remember a lot from fifth grade except for uh, we went to Echo Hill, which is what fifth graders here do. It's a big camping mm-hmm. like excursion um, over on the eastern shore of Maryland. And um, not a lot has changed. When I went back there this fall with the fifth grade, like a lot of memories came back. So that was a big like trip, I remember. And then we also went to Williamsburg um, yeah. at my school, and they do that here as well. So, like, some interesting parallels. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think for the boys here, it's, it's like an odd time in the sense that they're definitely becoming adolescents. They want their independence, but they're still pretty young. You know, a lot of them are 10 years old, just 11 years old, and they're sort of, like, straddling the world of adolescence and the world of still being a child. And I think that's hard to navigate sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it can be... It's a tough age to teach, but I, I really enjoy it. It's it's a total riot, and it's pretty chaotic, but and in good ways. You've taught other grades, right? You've taught fourth grade before? Yeah, so this is my first year at Gilman. I spent four years at Park um, Park School, where I taught fourth grade for three years, fifth grade for my first year there. And then my first teaching job out of college was up in Greenwich, Connecticut, where I was an assistant teacher for two years, one year in third grade and one year in first grade. So I've sort of spanned first through fifth have never taught second, um, but I definitely think I'm more geared towards upper elementary. That's my sweet spot. Why is that? It's just a little bit more <laughs> sophisticated. I mean, second grade, they're young. They're young. I mean, first grade was amazing, um, but I didn't do it alone. I had an assistant, or I was an assistant to a head teacher, and I mean, it's just, we had 20 girls in the class, so it was a lot of students, but um, it's they're so young at the beginning. They're kindergartners, basically, and it's amazing. You see, you get to teach them how to read, and they become so much more independent. But it, it's tough in the beginning. They can't zip their jackets and tie their shoes and cut their food. And um, you know, I, I'm not the most patient person, so that's that was hard for that me. That surprises me that you say that. I feel like you have to be. I feel like it's a prerequisite. You're I, probably I, a lot more patient than most people. I think. I guess I am. I, you know, I feel like I have this like separate reserve in me. I always say. You know, I'm, I'm actually not particularly extroverted. You know, I'm social and I like being around people, but I'm exhausted when I get home from school. And I feel like sort of whatever's going on in my life, I can easily put it aside. And it's hard to be in a bad mood when you work with kids. I feel like I have the best job in the world and I get to spend my days with, you know, like funny kids all day. Um, but it's it's super taxing and super tiring. I was thinking about that because a lot of people in their jobs – outside of, I mean, I just know the world of teaching, they get home and they want to do something social. Like they want to go out on a Thursday night, definitely a Friday night you want to go out. By Friday, like tonight, I'm psyched to just do nothing. Me too. I have no plan. Like my Fridays, I'm usually in bed by nine o'clock and um, I just like need that time alone to recharge. I think a lot of my friends who don't teach, they sit at a desk all day, you know, they're not interacting with people and I couldn't imagine doing that, but it definitely means my weekends are usually a lot less socially packed than the average person. Yeah, because we're on all the time. We're always in a conversation with somebody. We're always, you know, you can't be half speed teaching because you're talking to someone. You're trying to figure out a 
an issue. You're not just in a cubicle or yeah. kind of behind the scenes. You're actually face to face with people all day long. Yeah. No, it's pretty, I, I think I didn't realize that before I started to teach. And I'll never forget my, after my first day teaching, I was like, my feet hurt so badly. Like I was my, everything, in my body hurt. And I realized I was on my feet all day, walking around, squatting down, you know, it's constant. It's just constant motion. And I think I like that. Um, about elementary, I would, I would never go older. Um, but it's, it's challenging for sure. So did you always want to be a teacher? So <laughs> it's funny. Um, my dad's a doctor and my mom is a social worker. And my parents used to always say, like, Elise, you're not going to be in the helping profession. Like, you just don't have a lot of patience. Or, I mean, I'm a very empathetic person, but I, I could be – I was, like, a pretty tough teenager. And they used to sort of joke about that. And in college, um, I did – every summer work for this company called Overland, which is um, like an outdoor travel company for fourth through 12th graders. And um, that was, I, I loved it. I thought that maybe I would ultimately do like wilderness therapy of some sort. I was a psychology major. Um, and then I thought about maybe doing like city year, which was an AmeriCorps program. And I kind of fell into teaching. I didn't think, I, I had never counted it out, but I'd never really considered it. Uh, but I had a friend who was looking at jobs senior year, and she uh, found something through Carney Sando. Mm -hmm. It was an assistant teaching program in Greenwich, and I'd never really heard of Greenwich, Connecticut. I had no connection to it, but it seemed like a cool gig, and, you know, they paid for part of grad school, and um, you got exposed to, you know, a bunch of different grades, and I knew I didn't want to be in, like, New York City, and I knew that New York had all of these kinds of um, programs, and so I was like, well, I guess I'll apply to all the schools in Greenwich, so I applied to Greenwich Academy, Brunswick, Greenwich Country Day School, and ended up getting a job at Greenwich Academy. And I feel super lucky. Um, I think I'm pretty good at teaching, and I really love it. And um, I, I really can't imagine doing anything else at so, this point. So what was Greenwich Academy like? Because that's all girls, right? So you're at an all-girls school for how many years? Two. Two, Two years. years. Then you went to Park. Yep. And then different. Gilman, now all-boys school. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've liked all of them. Um, I think Greenwich Academy... It was my first teaching experience, and it was it was an amazing place to work. They treated you very well. You know, I mean, you got breakfast and lunch every day. Good five, food. Super good food. I mean, we would bring containers and, like, bring it home for dinner, you know, mm. stuff like that. And it was a lot. You know, I was going to grad school at night, teaching all day. Um, you know, it was my first two years out of college, and it was busy, but... Um, you know, I'm still close to the two women I worked with as my head teachers, and um, I credit them to a lot of what they taught me how to become a teacher in a lot of ways. So were you going to grad school in the city? Yeah. So at Greenwich Academy, you could either go to Bank Street, which is where I went in Manhattan, or a place called Manhattanville, which was in Purchase, New York, up in Westchester. And so a group of us would commute in once or twice a week to the city. We'd actually drive. It was easier than taking the train because we'd have to get to class by 4 or 4.45. Sounds I like think. a nightmare. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy when you think about what we did. But it was so it was so much fun. There were a ton of young teachers. Um, we all lived together. It kind of felt like an extension of college in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't have done it differently at all. It, you know, I finished my degree in two years and was ready to leave after two years and have a classroom on my own. So I think it, they did its job for sure. But it was it was a very busy time. What was the degree? Is it elementary education? So general childhood education, first through sixth. Um, and it's, if I would go back and do it differently, I think I would get a dual degree in special education. Um, but, you know, I was working, I've only worked at private schools and I think I was under the impression that 
that degree wouldn't be useful in a private school, which is completely false. I'm realizing, you know, so many kids have different learning needs and um, we were required to take one special needs or special education course. And the biggest thing I took away was that, you know, all students benefit from accommodations, right? And if, you know, the best teachers, you don't know which kids are getting accommodations because they find ways to weave them in for every child. And that really resonated with me. And I think that that would be an area I think if I would continue my education, I'd probably learn more about because I feel like it's always relevant. And, um, you know, at all three schools I've worked in, there have been kids who've had definitely significant, you know, learning needs. So what do accommodations look like in the lower school? I mean, I know in the upper school you can have more time yeah. for a test or the teacher is aware that you have ADHD and yeah. uh, ADD or dyslexia is another one yeah. that I admit that when I got to Gilman, I had no idea yeah. the extent and the difficulty that dyslexia brings, right? Your yeah. letters are all, but it's very, it makes reading and writing almost impossible. Yeah. The interesting thing about dyslexia, I've, I've done like a lot of my own research about it. If you can intervene early, kids have a really good chance of, you know, being back on grade level, being a successful reader and writer. Um, but I, I think there's a big shift right now going on in um, teaching literacy and teaching kids how to read. And it's sort of moving from this like whole language approach where you, you look at words and you memorize them to really focusing on the sounds and phonics and all of that. And um, so I know the lower school at Gilman is doing a lot of sort of overhaul in terms of how they teach reading and writing and phonics, and it's, it's really good stuff. But in terms of accommodations, I mean, extra time, a lot of kids, you know, will end up qualifying for that. Um, something as simple as, like, more space on the paper or graph paper or grid lines to help kids line up numbers, um, voice-to-text uh, for kids who are dysgraphic and struggle with that physical act of handwriting is a big one. Um, I mean, technology is amazing. There's so much out there that even I don't know about. Um, but those are that, those are definitely big ones. You know, tests taking tests in a reduced distraction environment. So we just had ERBs, which are like the lower school, mm -hmm. you know, standardized tests. I remember taking them growing up, and so there's you know a bunch of kids who will go into you know a quieter room, or they just have sort of um, extended time and just a more less distraction. Basically. So how's the how is the handwriting in the lower school? So I've been super impressed coming to Gilman. Um, part of why I wanted to come to Gilman was I wanted to be in a school where I felt like there was a little bit more of a focus on foundational skills. Um, Park was amazing. Um, there, It's like progressive education through and through, and it's very child-led, which I think can be fantastic. Um, but sometimes I felt like there wasn't um, enough of an emphasis on direct instruction um, in terms of like the most basic things, you know, handwriting, spelling, um, things like that. So the handwriting at Gilman, I've been very impressed with it. Um, a lot of the teachers who've been there for a long time, they're like, oh, this handwriting's, you know, not great. Um, the kids who come in from Calvert have really good mm -hmm. handwriting. Um, they have, like, the Calvert script there. But right now, handwriting's taught explicitly up through third grade. So starting in second, they learn cursive. And then in third, they learn uppercase cursive letters. And then by fourth grade, they really just I don't know many teachers who say you must write in cursive in fourth and fifth grade. I don't really care as long as I can read their handwriting, um, which sometimes I can't, and they have to go back and do it again. I'm curious why people teach cursive. So there's actually a lot of research 
I don't know how many like actual schools have adopted it, but that you should teach cursive first, which is interesting. And if you think about it, it makes sense. So there's less, you, you start at the same place on the line when you're for all cursive letters, I believe there's, you're not picking up your pencil each time. Mm -hmm. So for kids who struggle with fine motor, like the fluidity of it is actually, it, it's can be a lot more helpful. And for kids who struggle with reversals, so B's and D's and P's and Q's, mm -hmm. cursive can eliminate a lot of that. So I know in Montessori schools, they actually, I think, teach cursive first. And there is sort of like this school of thought that, um, especially as students are learning to blend sounds together to go from, you know, like at to cat, the cursive helps you since it's sort of like that connected text, if that makes sense. It it's supposed to help in that. So I don't know, I've never, I would love to do like a case study on a kid and just teach them cursive, you know, before they know how to write and see, I don't know, maybe on my OCAN someday I'll teach them cursive first. Yeah, I'm kind of, I, I mean, this is an interesting week to do this podcast because I'm kind of disillusioned with a lot of things that, that we commonly teach that I think are important because yeah. of chat GPT, which I've had a couple honor cases with, yeah. Yeah. with people. I mean, it's so easy and it's like, it will write a five paragraph essay for you in 0.2 seconds. And if that is going to be the future and yeah. you know what Google, it's going to be Google. It right. basically is. Right. And so I'm like, Oh, maybe we need to go back to like notebooks and blue books for essays. Yeah. When I, where I went to college in a lot of my classes, we weren't allowed to have computers. I went to Kenyon college, which they have a really big English department. And this wasn't even in English classes, but a lot of my professors were like, and this was in, 2012 to 2016, so not that long ago, um, they were like, nope, you have to take notes by hand, which is interesting now that I think about it. Um, oh, well, I've heard yeah. that is a really good way for people to learn how to um, just learn material, to yeah. put it pencil to paper, yeah. instead of, you know, some people would come to lecture in college and just bring their computer and type everything right. that the professor yeah. says, and you don't actually listen to right. it. You're not listening at all. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it depends on your learning style probably, but, you know, with fifth grade, we're trying to teach them how to take notes, and it's, I mean, it's a hard skill to learn, and it doesn't just come naturally to people. It's it's so easy for us, but you realize when you teach younger kids, like, how much has to be explicitly taught, um, and, yeah, so it's interesting to sort of see things through their eyes again. That's part of what I like about it, I think. One thing that I love when I come down to the lower school, I come down to this, I think, second or first graders to read sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I just love the little tricks that the teachers, like yeah. Dia Matthews is so good with like turning out the lights yeah. or clapping and getting everyone's attention, which is right. un unbelievable. Because well, no one teaches you that in grad school, right? It's not like in grad school, there's a I didn't have a class on classroom management, but so much is just watching and listening. And I feel like the best teachers copy, you know, they, they look at teachers who they admire and they sit in and they observe. And that's how I learned a lot of, you know, what I've done. And it feels so second nature to me, but, um, I know, right. If you're not used to doing that, you know, call and response and, you know, little chants and whatnot. Dee is amazing though. We're next to her kindergarten class and just how she like structures the kids going to the bathroom, you know, she has them do frog hops to the bathroom and, and, you know, like push ups and then go to the bathroom and then sprint back. You know, it's that that's tough with that age. So yeah. you have a lot of tricks up your sleeve. So 
in terms of classroom management, how do you kind of get the class back on track? Because fifth grade, you know, your mind is wandering all over the place. You got to yeah. get up. Yeah. You need to move the body. Yeah. I think the lower school does an awesome job just doing laps around the campus to get <laughs> some energy out. The scenic route is what they call it. They, I love yeah, the scenic route. They do a lot of the scenic route. I mean, I think it's part of it is right. You know, they come in at 730 in the morning and they go right out to recess. So you get a lot of kids who've come and already run for 30 minutes. I mean, they come in sweaty in fifth grade mm -hmm. in the morning and they smell, you know, and so that definitely helps them focus. But I think from a management standpoint, the most important thing is at the beginning of the year being so deliberate and so intentional about, you know, your community rules, your expectations, and even if it seems silly, like practicing them. And I did that with fifth grade this year. Like, let's practice, you know, coming in the classroom and let's practice going to the rug and let's practice. I mean, it's mind numbing at points, but they need it and they need just the repetition and the routine. And they're not quite old enough that they think it's completely stupid yet. Um, and then you have to revisit, you know, after breaks are always a tough time. They seem to forget everything, you know, mm -hmm. from just a management standpoint. And then... I, I haven't quite mastered this yet, but like just the look, you know, I feel like, you know, f Mr. Schloeder, who I work with, he's like a legendary fifth grade teacher. He can just look at a kid and they immediately, you know, sort of um, snap out of it and start doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I don't know if I have that, you know, that power yet. That will probably come. <laughs> maybe, <Yeah>. maybe one day. <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah, I like the scene. I mean, I think a lot of the things that you do in your lower school classes probably apply to the upper school. I mean, yeah. Sometimes I just have my students go on a lap and talk about the reading. Like, yeah. just, you need to move. Like, I couldn't sit in a class. Our classes are 80 minutes times so three. Gosh. By the time you get to third period, you, you need to move your body, get some blood flow going. Yeah. So One thing I think is so neat is that the upper school snack cart. So we eat lunch at 1045. I, I call it brunch to my class because it's just ridiculously early. But, um, you know, I think that's also so important, like eating and fueling. And I always give them snack time, which... Some people say, oh, in fifth grade, do they really need that? But they do. I mean, they're growing rapidly. You know, every after every break, they're inches taller. And, um, you know, I just think it's – I would much rather take an extra 10 minutes to let them play outside or to eat or to just get out their chatter, and it just pays off because I think they're so much more productive in their actual working time. And I feel, like, lucky to be at a place where that's allowed. You know, I can take them outside when I want. And do you ever give them candy in class, sugar? Um, we'll do Jolly Ranchers for tests. Um, I don't know. Some people say like, if you have a mint or gum, it can help you focus. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true. And it just, you know, it's, I don't like using candy as like an incentive. That's not my, not my thing. And I know sometimes there are, you have to do incentives, particularly with younger kids. But by fifth grade, I'm like, I'm not going to reward you for expected behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, that just isn't sort of how I roll. Yeah. Well, one thing I like is, uh, lightning the tennis coach i help him with his yeah. camps in the fall yeah and he uses points for incentive yeah. so he keeps a a log of all the kids points oh you lost a point oh you're gonna lose a point if you do that again yeah and it's just the best because at the end of a given day of tennis you see all the little guys crowded around to see how who has the most points and yeah. how many did he lose today how many yeah. No, it's good. I mean, I think also I've realized at Gilman, like competition is just much more acceptable. And I like that. I'm a competitive person. I think when I was at Park, it was a much different vibe in terms of it just wasn't competition wasn't valued in the same way. And I think, um, the you know, 
I've realized with boys, it's really helpful. You make everything into a game and they think it's fun. You know, if even if it's, you know, who can pick up the most pieces of trash off the floor when we're cleaning up, you know, and even that. And they're always like, well, what's the prize? And I'm like a high five. And that will still motivate them. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, they think it's a little bit silly at this point, but they're still sort of buying into it. And that's been that's been fun to be here for that. Yeah. Yeah, who doesn't love that? I know. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about tennis for you because you're a tennis player. You played in college. When did that all start? When did you get into tennis? So I, I was thinking about this because I figured you'd ask. I don't really remember. I, I didn't become particularly serious about tennis probably until I was maybe 13, 12 or 13. Um, I was like a very underscheduled kid. My brother and I did like a tennis clinic once a week. We went to Hebrew school once or twice a week. And I had a piano lesson like here and there. So we did a lot of just playing outside. And, you know, it was not like you see today with just super overscheduled kids. I think at some point, obviously, we both started taking it more seriously. And we grew up in Annapolis. And there just weren't a lot of kids who played competitive tennis in Annapolis. So we made the decision to move to, um, not to move houses, but to start playing at up in College Park. They have a huge tennis center the tennis center at college park and we would go up there three times a week it was 45 minutes each way and it was it was a big commitment but you know it was important to be able to play with better kids so that was probably around seventh or eighth grade for me and I did that through senior year and at some point I don't really remember when I decided you know I think I want to play in college um and my guess is that was probably around ninth grade and um so older brother Older brother, yeah, older he's brother. three and a half years older. So, did you play him a lot growing up? Did we that would, competition fuel you a little bit, or no? Um, it just made me behave really poorly. I, he brought out the worst in me, I think, on the court. And his playing style never matched up with mine. He, I like to play and hit the ball really hard. He was all about like making as many balls as possible. So it would just drive me crazy. And we would sometimes go out. You know, our dad would like feed balls to us or just go out and hit with us a little bit and it it always ended usually in like tears on my end it was not not great for our relationship we did better at ping pong um but even that you know I mean you know from pickleball I'm pretty competitive and so that would it would be tough for me to lose and I didn't like that we did though um play on our tennis team together it was a co-ed tennis team at our high school and so my freshman year my brother was a senior he played number one I played number two so that was like a fun experience mm-hmm. um, but we never you know really challenged each other like in a true match was the co-ed tennis is that in the fall or the spring in the spring that's the worst part about tennis for me is yeah. that it's in the spring I know because, with lacrosse yeah well and it's interesting I think in Annapolis how they did it is the girls teams played in the fall the boys teams played in the spring and I went to a small school called the Key School which it's in the MIAA it's in the C conference so we never played Gilman in sports but some of the other schools around here we did and um and for some reason there was just never enough kids to have um single gender teams and so you know my brother would be playing girls I would play boys it was just sort of what we did it was it was always kind of interesting hmm yeah um so there must have been something about tennis when you first started that you really liked about it, and it's such a lonely sport. So lonely. I was just talking about this yesterday. It's 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 incredibly lonely, and I don't know if you watched the documentary Breakpoint. Did we talk about a couple this? episodes? Yeah. So that just like gave me. It reminded me just how tough it is. Um, but I don't know. I think you know. Part of me, I, I think there's part of me that likes being alone out there. Although now that I'm older, I see just like such a value in team sports and I really feel like I missed out on that um college obviously it was a team aspect but 
it's still different. You're still having to directly compete against your, um, you know, teammates for a position on the team. I mean, all throughout the season, you're having challenge matches. Like, it can be really cutthroat. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there's something nice about, like, only you're to blame. I mean, it's a little different in doubles, but if, if something goes wrong, like, you can't put the blame on somebody else or say, oh, you know, it was the team. Like, it's, it's, it's all on you, mm -hmm. um, which I think is almost an easier – it's easier pill to swallow than – letting someone else down, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think the reason I like tennis so much, and this is maybe why the break point, I've only watched a couple episodes, but I, I'm, I'm going to really get into that show when I have time to watch it and why Kyrgios is, <sighs> I love Kyrgios. I don't, I'm not a fan of him. I think it's just, and this is interesting, maybe you could comment on this because you study psychology, but I think it's cool just to break down the inside the inner game of tennis yeah, the mental, mental component yeah. and like why I think curious is relatable because you do feel I mean most people do feel like that they don't act it out like yeah. he does yeah but right. it's I so mean, frustrating maybe there's benefit I think there is benefit to like letting out emotion on the court you know to be at one point I remember my college coach was like you're you're completely stone-faced like there's nothing and it actually might be beneficial to like let a little bit out, whether it's positive or negative. But I think it's just so easy to spiral when you're frustrated. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's what he needs. I think I struggle with him. Just he could be so much more successful if he just took it more seriously. But I guess if he's if he's okay with what he's doing, then I don't know. It's it's his career, it's his life, but. The behavior on the court kind of puts me off a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. My parents are really big on, like, if you throw your racket, you're off the court. Like, if you curse, you're off the court. We're not going to pay for you to play a sport and buy you a racket and then have you smash it, you know, it's which a lot of kids do. Um, so I think that was a challenging thing about tennis. And, I've, I, like, I almost have, like, a visceral reaction watching it. As an adult, <laughs> it makes me well, sick. <laughs> in other sports, people just call that passion. It's true. Tennis um, is, is just a, you know, it's... I don't know. It's like there's this old-fashioned element where you're sort of expected to be prim and proper, which no one ever really told me I had to be, but I don't know. I, I've always seen it as a sign of strength, as somebody who can control their emotions. Um, but also in life, you know, it's important to let out your emotions, and I fully realize that as well. So I don't know. It's kind of an interesting double standard there. Do you have a favorite tennis player? Um... I don't, you know, I don't watch a ton of tennis. I got more into it when I watched um, Breakpoint. I love Francis Tiafo. So Francis played at College Park when my brother and I did. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I've told, we, you know, I don't think he would remember me now, but I certainly remember him. I mean, and he has a really interesting backstory. He was always younger than both of us and just, you know, constantly hitting against the wall, working super, super hard. He knew everybody's stats. You know, you'd come in from a tournament, he'd be like, I heard you lost 6-0, you know, in that low-level tournament up in Frederick, Maryland. I mean, he was on it. He was obsessed. And so it's been just really fascinating to watch him, like, rise into fame. That's so um, cool. Yeah. So adult. you kind of saw his work ethic. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty impressive. I mean, in his story, you know, he basically slept at certain points on, like, a massage table in the back of the tennis center. His dad uh, is an immigrant from Sierra Leone, and he has a twin brother, Franklin, who was also a pretty good tennis player. I think he played at, like, Salisbury. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, but Francis just, like, really took to it. And, you know, I think a lot of kids, you know, sort of snubbed their nose at him because tennis is a pretty wealthy sport. He was sort of this kid who was always in, like, hand-me-down clothes and just sort of 
puttering around and I mean you know he surpassed everybody and he always worked incredibly hard and had just like such a love for the game you yeah know? it's such cool. a great story it is it's it, a it great reminds story. me a lot of this guy I grew up with Mikal Bridges who's on the Brooklyn Nets and he was on the Phoenix Suns for a while but yeah. he played on my middle school basketball team at TE Middle yeah. and barely got on the floor like he wasn't in the starting lineup we'd yeah. put him in at the end of the game maybe if we were up but he wasn't one of the guys but he would be at the YMC every single day yeah every time yeah. he went to the Y he'd be playing pickup yeah all of a sudden he shoots up he gets big yeah. starts dunking he's going to Villanova for basketball awesome. now he's you know I know. I think about that with my students because they love, you know, they love football. They love basketball. And I'm always like, I wonder which, you know, I don't know if any of them are going to become professional athletes, maybe. But I just think being at a K through 12 school, it'll be interesting to see them sort of grow up and grow into themselves. And, you know, they t they're so proud to be Gilman students. You know, they say, oh, I can't wait to play on the football team or on the basketball team. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that'll be really neat to be here hopefully long enough to see them, yeah. you know, develop into that. Mm-hmm. So what was it like for you playing uh, tennis in college at Kenyon? And, you know, did that, I guess, increase in, uh, I guess, the seriousness of the sport for you? Like, how did that play out? Because I know firsthand experience playing at the next level is such a different, yeah. like, so much pressure. Yeah. It's a lot different from, you know, growing up and playing and probably being the best player in all of, you know, second on your team. In high school, and now a, you're. It was a low bar in high school. It was <laughs> yeah. a very low bar in high school, but it was different. Um, I loved it. I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was also challenging and really complicated. I think the dynamics of being on, you know, an all women's tennis team. There was a lot of drama a lot of the time. Um, a lot of, you know, really competitive girls, and it was tough for me in the sense that I, I love tennis. I loved it. I don't think it mattered to me enough to be so competitive to like put my friendships at risk, which sometimes felt like would happen. Um, so that like the social piece of it was hard for me to navigate. Um, as competitive as I am in like a lot of aspects of my life, I think I was never competitive enough to be really, really good at tennis because um, it just wasn't worth it to me to it just didn't feel like almost true to myself sometimes to be like cutthroat on the court. Um, but I loved being part of a team. I loved cheering people on. And I had, it was like an up and down road. You know, some years I played a lot. Some years I didn't. My senior year, I wasn't really a starter. Um, my freshman year I was. My sophomore, and my sophomore and junior year I was. But my senior year I wasn't. We got a lot of really good freshmen. And that was hard, you know, to be the oldest on the team and not be contributing in that way. But I think it was, you know, a good lesson and you lose a lot in tennis. I lost a ton growing up. I mean, only there's only one winner and uh, my parents still always say like you and your brother lost so many tennis matches, but like we had so much fun doing it as a family mm -hmm. and traveling and whatnot. So I think that definitely helped, but it was, it's a big adjustment to just navigate all that on top of, you know, schoolwork and social life and being away from home for the first time. It was a lot. Definitely. Yeah. And when you say drama and like the cutthroat elements to tennis, it's like, well, I beat you. So like now you're I'm out of you. You're out of the lineup. You know, I mean, you can have a challenge match. And our coach was pretty set on like if look, I mean, 
let's say I played number five on the team, if I challenged the number one player and had a fluke and beat her, I wouldn't probably become the number one player in that match. But, you know, I mean, you had to earn your spot and that could change a lot in the season. And I would get, you know, sometimes nervous. And it, it was it was hard to try to shut off sort of one aspect of my life in an effort to mm-hmm. earn my position. So it it was tough. And then doubles, you know, trying to find the team and the combinations that can always be tricky. So I really like doubles, but that was a whole nother sort of like science of figuring out who played well together. You know, I play with my best friend and we were brutal teammates together because we both didn't want to upset each other. You know, we'd make a mistake and say, sorry. And our coach was like, you two can never play together again. You guys are just not, you know, you may be great friends, but as teammates or as doubles teams, you're terrible. Um, Mm. You almost have to, I just felt like you had to shut off a lot of like, the normal emotions of having relationships with individuals, which hmm. was hard for me. Interesting, because Kyrgios is a good doubles player. He, he is. His, he is really best is. friend or awesome. He really is. I think good doubles is almost more fun to watch than singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, like, beautiful. It's almost like a dance, you know, yeah. working in tandem. Um, so did you start playing doubles in college? Yeah, I never played doubles before, and it's it's hard. You know, there's a lot of strategy involved, and, you know, I was not a player that in singles went up to the net a lot, but being at the net is, like, that's how you win in doubles. You don't win by staying at the baseline. It's kind of like pickleball, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some advice given to me on Wednesday night about, you know, trying to get up to the kitchen more, but it's it's the same in tennis. So, uh, you know, but I think the best doubles teams, you almost don't, you know where your player is without looking on the court, and you don't have to look back, and you can just sense where they are, and mm-hmm. um, that takes a lot of practice, and when it's constantly switching and there's people, you know, coming in and graduating and starting, it it can be tricky. So, so playing tennis in college, I mean, I know what it's like playing a sport in college, and it takes up a ton of your time, and yeah. it's occupying your mind almost at all times. It's hard to have the work-life balance, I yeah. guess, or sport-life balance yeah. in college because you can really devote everything to the sport. Yeah. Did you feel that way at Kenyon? I imagine Kenyon's kind of – it's in the middle of nowhere, right, Ohio? Completely. It's in – it's – an hour northeast of Columbus, surrounded by cornfields. You know, there's a big Amish population in Knox County, Ohio, so you see, like, horse and buggies. It's kind of otherworldly in some ways. So you don't have, like, the outside distractions of, you know, like New York City, if you were going to school there, but or Boston. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's demanding to be a student. And it was D3, but it was still mm-hmm. a significant amount. I mean, we practiced two and a half, three hours every single day, and in season, you know, on the weekends and traveling. It's a lot. Um, but I think most of my friends, my close friends were athletes in tennis or other sports. And so everyone sort of figured out that you had to manage your time pretty well. And I was a tour guide in college too, and would always say like athletes typically actually get, you know, have higher GPAs when they're in season because they're, it's true, I think, because they're just forced to manage their time in a much more efficient and better way. Yeah. You have a schedule created yeah, for you. Exactly. And- once you get out of practice, you have to study or that's it. I mean, yeah. I mean, my day was so, you know, I would wake up if we had like morning fitness, you'd go, you'd shower, you'd eat, you go to your class, you go to lunch, you go to your next class, you go to practice and then everybody showers, everybody goes to dinner and everybody goes to the library. And it was, you know, it was like a pack of us, but it was fun. It was, you know, it was, I have a lot of good memories of that. Why'd you choose to study psychology? Where did that come from? So my freshman year, I took, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I took a bunch of different classes. And the beauty of Kenyon is you can do that. You have like distribution requirements, but it's pretty easy to fulfill. So I think I took a psych class. I took an econ class. I took an environmental science class and a religion class. 
I got a C in econ. I had a really hard time with that. It was my first C, and it was it was jarring for me. Um, and I loved my other classes, but I really liked the intro psych class. I had a wild professor. She would like stand on tables and she'd bring her baby in for demonstrations. I mean, she was pretty out there. Her name was Professor White. I'll never forget her. Um, and then I just I just kept taking psych classes. And I think at that point I knew I wanted to work with kids in some capacity after my after my freshman year was my first summer working for Overland and um, that was sort of the closest thing Kenyon had. They didn't have like an education degree. Um, and yeah, I felt like it sort of combined. It was sciencey, but not too sciencey. There was reading and writing, but not too heavy. It felt like a good balance of a lot. Do you have to do labs for that? So we had a, it was called like research methods in psychology. So, um, there was that class, there was a psych stats class, but I never did, we didn't have to, not like bio or chem, like those really long labs. No, I stayed away from those. I took a fair number of psych class. Psychology was hard. Uh, th- there were multiple choice tests that I remember, mm-hmm. like if you missed one little detail in a lecture, you'd get off. But I always thought it was fascinating. I had this guy, um, I'm going to draw a blank on his name, I think it's Daniel... He wrote a book on like the science of happiness or the psychology oh, of happiness. Um, oh, I think I know. Gilbert Daniel Gilbert okay. is yeah, his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, that rings a bell. Um, he was your professor. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And he was awesome, and that was one of the most popular classes in school because yeah. this guy it was almost like a I don't know it was a very entertaining lecture. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, Kenyon also Kenyon was small, so my biggest psych lecture was thirty people for intro psych. So you know, I think at other schools it's probably. 200 people sometimes so nothing ever felt like this massive lecture that I had to sit in and you know mm-hmm. um, everything felt like very personal just because of the class size there which I think also helped because a lot of the intro classes were you know would have been really large elsewhere mm-hmm. um, but I, I really liked it. Did you like the size of the school? I did you know I went to a key school was really small I graduated with 45 kids in my grade and I went there for 15 years so it was a lot of time with the same kids. So Kenyon was 1,600 kids, which is tiny, but felt big to me. Um, I liked that I could go anywhere and know somebody, but there were still people by the time I graduated who I was like, who's that? Mm-hmm. You know, at graduation, mm-hmm. I remember being like, how do I not know who this person is? But um, the size didn't bother me. You know, I think had I come from maybe a large public school, it would have felt different, uh, but it worked, definitely worked for me. What are the um, schools that you played in your league? I imagine a lot of long bus rides <laughs> yes. from the middle of Ohio. So many. So Kenyon was part of the North Coast Athletic Conference, the NCAC. So we played – Denison was our big rival. Mm-hmm. Um, Oberlin, um, Worcester, the College of Worcester, Ohio Wesleyan, or OWU as we called them. And then we did a lot of – you know, oh, DePaul was another big one. It's the school in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Schools I had really never heard of. I was very anti going to Ohio. It's weird how I ended up there. But every year we had like a 14-hour bus ride to Madison, Wisconsin for a big tournament. That was always a tough one. Um, we'd go to St. Louis sometimes, Chicago. We'd play University of Chicago, Wash U. Um, and then for spring break – we would usually travel somewhere. So two years we went to California, three years we went to California, and then one year we went on a bus, this is brutal, we went on a bus with the men's team because we all had the same coaches and did a deep south trip. So we wow. drove from Ohio, we stopped in Tennessee and played Sewanee, 
and then drove to Mobile, Alabama, uh, right around Mardi Gras. And we played a bunch of schools down there, like University of Western Florida. We went hmm. to Pensacola. And then we ended in Atlanta and played like Emory and a couple of other schools down Emory's there. Emory's beautiful. Emory's beautiful. They're also really good at tennis. Really? Yeah, they have very strong tennis down there. Tennis and swimming, which hmm. are also, Kenyon has pretty strong tennis and swimming. Um, so that those are always good, good matches. Hmm. Yeah. I know Swanee, people love that place. It's beautiful, too. I think they, there's some, I forget, they have some name for it, like the something of the South. University of University the South? University of the South, yeah. yeah. And, um, Kenyon's pretty beautiful. It lo- I, when I was looking at schools, I that was the thing I cared the most about. Interestingly, I was like, I want to go somewhere that's beautiful, you know, yeah. which is important, you know. Yeah. I like to be outside, but it was literally what, like, drove my <laughs> drove my college search, which is kind so of odd. <laughs> you visited Kenyon before you went there, and it was what you expected. Yeah. So I, I looked at, I knew I wanted to play tennis in college. So I looked at mostly small liberal arts schools. I looked at a lot of NESCAC schools. Um, I also looked at a couple of D1 schools like uh, Bucknell and Colgate were the two. Um, and my parents were like, you know, what about the school Kenyon? And I was like, I don't want to go there. Why would I ever go to Ohio? A kid from my high school had gone there who was kind of just different. And I was like, everybody must be like him. And they were like, you need to relax. <laughs> Just go go give it a shot. And I liked it. You know, when I looked at schools, there was never a place where I went to where I was like, I must go here. I didn't have that like aha moment mm-hmm. like a lot of kids did. Every school I went to for the most part, I was like, I think I could be pretty happy here. And that kind of stressed me out because I thought I was supposed to have sort of that aha moment. And I love the coach at Kenyon. Uh, I still talk to him today, Scott. I, you know, he had a good relationship with him. I had a good chance of getting in there. And so it kind of just sort of came down to it. I was like, I think I think this is a good fit. You know, I'll apply early, and I kind of want to be done with the, deci- the process. And by December of my senior year, I knew I was going there, and um, I, I don't regret it at all. But I kind of I kind of wanted to be done with it, honestly. The yeah, after process, four years. it was it was a lot. Um, so is there a lot to do outside of Kenya in terms of outdoor activities? Is there hiking there? Or like what can you do off campus? Or did you feel like you're isolated at Kenyon College? It's beautiful, but it's you're pretty isolated. You're mm-hmm. not like – you can go to Columbus, not for outdoor activities, but there's a great mall in Columbus for people who like to shop. That's like a – you know, for when parents come and visit, they'll usually take you out there. There's a beautiful river that runs through campus called the Kokosing River, so people can float down that in the summer and spring, which is nice. There's, like, running trails. There's not mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I didn't, unfortunately, playing tennis, the one thing that I felt like I really sacrificed in college was I couldn't, like, do a lot of outdoor stuff during the year. There was a really active outing club, and I just couldn't really be part of it because of tennis. But I think if I had gone somewhere else and not played, I think that would have been what I would probably channel a lot of, like, my outside time into because I, I love that kind of stuff. After you graduated, you got into that outdoor what was oh, over overland so yes overland so overland um it's a company based in williamstown massachusetts so where williams college is and um they came to they go to a bunch of you know they go to ivies they go to nescacs small liberal arts schools and recruit for leaders and i ended up applying for a job there and it was wonderful and i did that every summer so after my freshman sophomore junior and senior year leading trips and so that sort of like filled my bucket in that way um but I didn't really get to do much, you know, during the school year around that. So I saw you, you had Knowles. Did you do the Knowles program at all? So for Overland, I did. I had to be Wilderness First Aid certified. So I did that through like a Knowles program. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, but I haven't done a Knowles trip. Um, 
I would love to at some point. Yeah. You know, they have stuff for teachers and educators, which would be really cool to get a grant to do that. Yeah. At some point. Um, but I haven't I haven't done a trip like as a student there yet. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds good. Um, yeah. I mean, the Overland program sounds like it kind of got you into. I mean, you knew you wanted to be a teacher, but it, I guess. Yeah, I confirmed that for you. It was very formative for me. Um, I love being outside. I think seeing kids in the outdoors is like a really interesting perspective. A lot of these kids had never, you know, really been outside and camped before. And I guess over my time there, I started working with younger kids, you know, when that's sort of like the entry level. You work with fourth and fifth graders who have most of them have never been away from home before, never camped. It's it's tough. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're doing like local trips in New England and then. My third and fourth summers, I worked out west. So my third summer, I led trips in Colorado. And my fourth summer, I led trips um, out in Washington State and, like, the North Cascades. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, it was beautiful. My sister lives out there, and I oh, yeah. still haven't oh, you have to go. gone to visit. But Go in the summer is what everybody says. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful in the summer. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I would love to go back again, like, without children and just sort of be able to experience it on like my own speed but it was it was stunning out there. the problem is the travel i mean it takes forever to get there and i always check the flights and it's like i don't know if i'm gonna yeah. pay that to go for a weekend that was the beauty of overland it's like you you got paid almost nothing to work there but you know you were getting basically free travel you were working 24 hours a day seven days a week but it felt so worth it to me you know you're going to these places for free you know besides the work and um it was, it was, it's a neat place to experience or a neat way to experience travel. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of being at Gilman. Like it was, there was, all, it was always somewhat chaotic and, you know, it's usually two young adults, a male and a female. I think now sometimes they have three leaders. It's changed a little bit, but, and then usually 12, 10 to 12 kids, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. It's, it's a lot. You have a van and you're sort of meandering around the woods for two weeks, but it was, it was a lot of fun. First first year at Gilman, seems like you're really liking the place. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, what have you enjoyed, I guess, about your first year um, just being in the lower school? And it's been a bit of a change from Park, but in a good way, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think I could have been very happy staying at Park for the rest of my teaching career, but I felt like I was 28. You know, I just want to try something different. It's the best way to learn. Um, Gilman had a really good reputation, and... I had tried all girls. I had worked at co-ed, so I was sort of drawn to the all boys. And I felt like when I was at Park, um, I just found it more interesting to sort of like deal with the complexities of teaching boys. Um, so I've loved that aspect of being here. I, part of me can't really imagine going back to teaching co-ed, uh, just because I think it's really fun to teach all boys. Uh, I have a fantastic group this year. I love my class. And I was saying today to a parent, you know, maybe you feel like some sort of allegiance with your first class, but they're, they're like exceptionally kind and exceptionally sweet and exceptionally funny, I think. And so I just, I adore them, you know. How many boys are in one class? 15, usually. 15? 15. That's a lot to handle. It is. You no know, wonder you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. But I don't know. I think the special thing about being an elementary school teacher is like you get to create that little community and, um, conferences are fun because you sort of get to reflect back on the year and like we've come really far I'm always nervous in the beginning of the year to think like are you know are we going to form a relationship are they going to like me are people going to get along and um it takes like a lot of intentional work but I think it it pays off you know we we like it's sort of like a well-oiled machine at times with chaos but it's it's been it's been 
wonderful, I think. I really like it. So one thing I I think is true about all teachers, but especially lower school teachers, middle school teachers who are on all the time, and, you know, you said you get tired really easily by the end of the day. So you've got to have something that is kind of an outlet when you're in your own time. And besides pickleball, Wednesday night pickleball, what is it that you do to kind of recharge after a long day or a long week in the lower school usually like exercise of some sort that's helpful for me it's always even when I was like a young kid if I would be in a bad mood my parents would say like go run around and that would always make me feel better um so I think exercise has been helpful um my boyfriend and I recently moved to Hamden so just like walking around and um checking out the new neighborhood that's been nice I really like to drink coffee so like trying new coffee shops Mm -hmm. that was really hard for me when COVID happened and I couldn't you know I like I couldn't just go out and do my work somewhere else I don't like sitting in my apartment all day um I like to sort of be in a coffee shop or a cafe and like find you know a good atmosphere like that there's a good one there in Hamden on the corner uh Near the oyster, Dylan's oh, oysters. Um, what's it called? That's a good coffee like shop. Like a right? common ground. Is that yeah, what it's called? Yeah, yeah, common ground. I've only been there once. That you know, we live in a building with a coffee shop called Artifact, which is fantastic. They have yes, phenomenal. okay. Um, it's dangerous to live in that building, but um, they have a, there's there's a lot of good ones. Bird in Hand is another really good mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. Um, by Hopkins. It's also a bookstore. Yep. So that has a really nice vibe. Um, I'm trying to think what else. There's a lot of good ones. Baltimore has has some definitely some good. I used to post shops. up at Artifact a, yeah. a little bit. That's yeah. a good spot. It's a great spot. You could spend a lot of money there when you. They have, I have a building discount, which is nice. Yeah, they don't give you a free refill, which I usually like. No, they don't. If but you, if you if live you s- there, ten percent off. Okay. So that adds up eventually. And you have that barbecue place across the street. That's a good Blue spot. Pit. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of good food, a lot of good drinks. Um, you know, I like to cook. That's also another thing. Um, I definitely cook more in the summer or like try new things in the summer when I feel like I don't have like time against me. Um, sometimes during the week it feels just like robotic, like just get a meal on the table and eat something good and, you know, move on. But I like experimenting like that mm-hmm. when I have the time. Um, but honestly, you know, it sounds kind of weird as exhausting as it is. Like I like it, it rejuvenates me to go to work, which I feel very lucky to be able to say. I think mm-hmm. it you know, in a way it does. As, as tiring as it is, I still love it. And it, you know, it brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. yeah. So let's get to your book recommendation because you have a, yes. a conference coming up here. Yes. Um, yes. Kristen Hanna. Yeah. So this is, should I hold it up? To the sure. Camera? It's called The Great Alone um, by Kristen Hanna. Um, I, this was probably the first book that I read, like as an adult, not in college, like not for school. And it really, I think like got me into reading. I love to read now. I don't have as much time um, during the year, but I love this book for two reasons. I like reading about dysfunctional families. I think that's like a genre that I find very compelling. I think in part the drama is interesting, but also I like the, um, just like the psychology behind it and the dynamics. That's something I've always found really interesting to read about. And then it's about this family that moves to Alaska into the wilderness. So it's sort of has just beautiful scenery and like I find stories with sort of man versus nature really compelling mm-hmm. and it, it combines the two things I think in a very good way so I highly recommend it. So it's a whole family living in Alaska. Yes so the dad's a Vietnam vet and they have a 13 year old daughter. The mom has a very interesting relationship with the dad. He's a pretty volatile guy um, and it's just sort of about their experience you know moving. I think it's from Washington State up into 
like the complete wilderness in Alaska and surviving and mm. navigating all of that and just like the isolation and how that impacts the relationships and wears on people. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's a good read. I highly recommend it. Okay. I love it. Thank yeah. you. Have you ever read Into the Wild? I have. I've read Into the Wild. I saw the movie as well, but it's been a really long time. I feel like I could reread that. Have you? Yes. Um, I've watched, I haven't watched all of the movie. I've watched some of it, but that, oh, that story always, I don't know. I, I like it a lot, but I'm Pretty also upsetting. like, why'd that guy do that? Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting. <laughs> My mom actually, at one point, we've talked about that a lot and She's had, like, arguments with friends about Into the Wild. I think she had a friend who once said, like, that guy is just so selfish, you know? And I think my mom saw it from a much different perspective of, like, well, he was clearly just hurting so much. Um, I mean, and that's, like, an extreme way to sort of cope. But I think, like, these stories, if you look at it from, like, a psychological perspective, it can be really, really fascinating just to sort of understand, like, what compels somebody to do something so extreme, especially like move a family. I can't really imagine, mm -hmm. you know, moving an entire, you know, family unit in that way. It's one thing when it's just yourself and you're alone and that's all you're responsible for. But when you're responsible for a child or a spouse, it's different. Interesting. All right. I like that a lot. Um, I guess I'll give you a couple book recommendations yeah, based on what you're telling me about the wilderness and families, <laughs> because I yeah. teach a short fiction class. And one of the things I notice is all of the not all of them, but most of the really good stories, at least the ones that I like that I bring into the class, are ones about families, mm -hmm. dysfunctional situations. Yeah, yeah. Raymond Carver is a good right. uh, writer, short story teller about families. Like okay. It's always about dysfunction in yeah. a family. He's from Washington State, okay. so okay. that might work. And then the other one I'm reading right now, As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, mm. okay. is know. about a family and... Uh, a very difficult book. Okay. I chose it for my American Lit class, which I don't think I'm going to have my students read because it's just so tough. Like I'm having, yeah, I'm reading it for the second it. time and yeah. it's like you've got to really pay attention and understand what's happening. But it, it has each member of the family tell a different chapter, which that I kind of like. Yeah. Like it's rotating chapters. You've got the sun and it's all stream of consciousness. Oh, so wow. you're like trying to okay. put together what this character is saying and it's so good, though. Okay, so. I'll have to try that one. The Glass Castle is another one. I was telling some of my friends in the lower school, they're like, what book are you going to do? And the, the Glass Castles talk about dysfunctional family. It doesn't have as much of the wilderness, but mm -hmm. that was another one that, you know, I mean, I think all families are dysfunctional in their own way, right? Sure. But it's, it's just really interesting, I think, to read about it. So. Awesome. Yep. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, a lot of fun. Fun experience. Yep, we'll see you on the pickleball course. See you on Wednesday. <laughs>